We're going to continue on in our series today, the Disruptor Series. What does it mean to be a disruptor in our day and age? Uh, And we're going to talk about what it means to be a disruptor uh, as an investor. Uh, I don't know about you, but because of recent events in my life and in several of those close to me, I've, I've been thinking about the end of my life. What will people say about me when I'm no longer here? What impact will I have had? What difference will I have made? How will I have invested my life with the time that I was given? Because I I don't know if you know this, but we're only here for a really, really short amount of time. In the grand scheme of things, the Bible talks about our life being a vapor. That's That's not a lot of time. So what are we doing? What are we investing in with the time that we have? And and any executive coach or life coach will tell you that it's actually a really helpful and motivating exercise to think about the end of your life and work backwards. And then whatever you decide, however impact you want to have, uh, start that now. Because it starts now. You can make plans today and and, and start doing things today that will make your future what it is later. We're we're starting today in 1 Chronicles, and I know, the Old Testament, ooh. (laughs) And I want us to think about 1 Chronicles as a highlight reel of King David, right? The 40 years he was king of Israel and Judah, it's kind of his highlight reel. Uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles are historical books. They were written to remind the people of Israel about their history. They were written to remind them that God was still at work in their lives, even though they had been through some pretty gnarly stuff in Babylon. So just for some context, this is when the people of Israel had been, uh, had been enslaved and captured and taken to Babylon, and this is them coming back. And so the chronicler was the person who wrote the book Chronicles that they later separated into two books. And so that's where we have the Chronicles. Chronicles talks about King David's ascension to the throne, how he established Jerusalem as as the capital, how warriors, fighters from all over the area were clamoring to come be a part of his army. The best of the best wanted to be a part of what he was doing and and many other royal accomplishments. There's a lot of great stuff in Chronicles about King David. It doesn't really dig in to his, his mistakes. It doesn't really dig into how he messed up in life. And even in that, I think there is a theology in that because God continued to use David regardless of his mistakes. Because David, if we have a picture of David, his whole story, the story of his life is a guy that regardless of position and authority, continued to humble himself again and again before his God. And so today I want us to end at, uh, at to begin at the end of David's life. First Chronicle ends with this, and he, David, died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. First Chronicles 29, 28. So we have to ask ourselves, what did David do? What did he invest in? What did he invest himself in to have that kind of life written about him by the Chronicler? Sounds like a great movie title, right? The Chronicler. Eddie Rodriguez is the chronicler. And I just have, and I just have to do some 
qualifying right off the bat. And it's what this statement is not saying is that because he was a wealthy king, he had a good life. It's not saying that. And somewhere along the line, I don't know where, but our culture has infused into our psyche that we are what we have. And that is not what this is saying at all. Nor is it saying that he got everything right. Because he didn't. He didn't always make the right decision. Yes, he was a giant slayer. Yes, he was a poet warrior. Yes, he was a legendary king. But he is also just a man. Flaws and all. And it's through his story that we see a man continually humbling himself. Coming back into right relationship with his God. For us, David is a great example of someone who invested in worship. Who invested in the house of God and who invested in relationship. And that's why the chronicler was able to write at the end of his life that he died a good old age, having enjoyed life, wealth, and honor. If we know just a little bit about David, we know that he was a worshiper. There's even an account in the Bible of him being so caught up in worship that he dances out of his clothes. It's in there. That's passion. I also wonder what specific worship dance moves he did for that to happen. David is also the author of around half of the Psalms in the Old Testament. And just last week, I was reminded by our lead pastor that there's a breadth of emotion that happens in the Psalms. If we look at David's life, it wasn't just when everything was going great that he worshiped. It wasn't just when he was on top that he gave thanks to God that he praised God, although he did do that. But even when he was at his lowest, when he was grieving, when the pain was so great that he was numb, even then he worshiped God. Psalm 13, a Psalm of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. God is not distant even though you, you think he's silent. God is not mad at you because of how things are going in your life. He has not forgotten you. He is at work in your life. He is working in your life right now. And I'm convinced that this practice of thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, praising him for who he is, regardless of the situation, actually makes or breaks our life. The word thanksgiving translates to literally praising God. What are we praising him for right now? Even when things don't look that great, right where we are today, what are we giving thanks to God for? We all have those negative people in our life, right? And I'm, talk I'm not talking about people that just are having a bad day, but people that are always griping and complaining no matter what. Are those happy people? No. No. Do people say, I want to be just like him. I want to be just like her. No. And if you don't know any negative people in your life, well, 
Just look straight ahead. But then we also know people that are going some, through some really, really hard stuff. And regardless of the stuff, they still continue to give thanks. They still continue to praise God. And I, I'm not talking about that sugar-coated, sappy, like, optimism, positivity. I'm not talking about that stuff. Nor am I talking about false humility in any way. I'm not talking about saying everything's fine when it's not fine. It's not about wearing a mask so that you can look like you have it all together. Because can we, can I just be honest? None of us have it together. None of us. And I don't know where we got this idea where we have to walk through those doors like we have it all together. This should be the best place to be. It's okay not to be okay. This should be the place. It's okay not to be okay. Why is it so important for us to keep up appearances, especially at church? We are all sinners saved by grace, period. There is no one in here more saved than anyone else. It doesn't, that's, not a real, that's not a thing. It's not real. So can't we just be honest with each other about what's really going on? Be where you are. It's okay. God, in his unfailing love, he's got you. He's got you. It doesn't matter what your bank account looks like or your investment portfolio or even if you even have a portfolio. It doesn't matter what that looks like right now. Your God in heaven created you with the express purpose to lavish his love on you. If you're looking for purpose, if you're looking for why you exist in the world, it's because God created you to love you. And his opinion of you is the only one that matters. It's the only one. Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of me? Human beings that you care for me, you know the hairs on my head. Praise him. Give thanks to him. When life seems like it's at its most difficult is when we should be praising the loudest. Father, thank you for your faithfulness towards me. Thank you for giving me a way out of the darkness in my life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my church home where it's okay not to be okay. Thank you for who you are. Even when I was at my worst, you gave your best and you continue to give your best for me. When life gets difficult, may our first response be one of thanksgiving. Because it's a, pers a perspective thing, right? Sometimes we have to get out of our little worlds and focus on the bigger picture to see that God is actually working in our lives and in the lives of those around us. To, to be like the people of Israel, reminded, reading Chronicles, to being reminded that God is at work in our lives. And that's what I want the church to be. That's what I want our church to be, that we get out of our, our, our little lives and see that there's something so much bigger, that there is a Messiah, one who came to save us from ourselves, whose way is the best way, and who loves me right where I am today, flaws and all. This is the first Thanksgiving my family will spend uh, without my grandfather. Uh, he died a month ago tomorrow uh, of congestive heart failure. And there's no array around it. This time of year is just sad for a lot of people. 
It's just tough. Uh, but even in that, and I get it, we've, we've, lost, we've lost loved ones, we're away from family, we're, we're away from friends who are family. The felt emotions of the season, of this season specifically, are, are unique to any other time of year. Uh, and, and hear me when I say, I, I'm not asking you to repress your feelings. It's not what I'm saying. It's, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to grieve. Uh, that's appropriate. But what I am saying, that even in those, these painful times, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the grief, there is, there is real healing in giving thanks. There is real healing in giving thanks. If we activate thanksgiving in our lives, if we practice thanksgiving in our lives, it heals us on the inside. So I, I will, I, I'll miss my granddad this Thanksgiving and Christmas, but I am also so thankful for the man he was. He was an example of generosity, extreme generosity. He lived so frugally for himself so that he could give extravagantly to other people. That's how he lived his life. I'm so thankful for the legacy he left my family. So I will miss him and it is painful. And at the same time, I thank God for his life. David invested in worship. Regardless of, of his situation, he invested in giving thanks. What can we give thanks God for today? Especially this week. Right where we are right now. David also invested in the house of God. And this is a late night revelation, so you'll just have to listen and trust me for it because we don't have the slide for it. First uh, Chronicles 28. Here are the blueprints for the whole project as God gave me to understand it, David said. David continued to address his son Solomon. Take charge. Take heart. Don't be anxious or get discouraged. God, my God, is with you in this. He won't walk off and leave you in a lurch. He's at your side until every last detail is completed for conducting the worship of God. David is referencing the plans for the temple, the new temple that was to be built under the watch of Solomon. Now, although David had a heart to build a sanctuary, to build a temple for God, God's will was for Solomon to do that. And, but we get a picture here of David um, spending hours and hours and hours pouring over the details of this place that would house the presence of God. David poured himself into the house. He purchased the land for this temple at full price. The guy was going to give it to him. But David understood the cost of worship. He's saying, no, I need to pay full price for this. This is where the house of God will be built. He knew whose kingdom he was supposed to be building. Even though he was a king, he knew, he, he cared, and he served the king well. And in this last exchange of David and his son Solomon, I'm transported back to a field, to the, the backside of a desert, a young shepherd boy watching sheep worshiping his guts out. And, and I'm convinced that even if David had never been found and anointed and, and brought up through the ranks to be king of Israel, even if he had stayed a shepherd all his life, it wouldn't have changed his worship. He would have worshiped the same way. He would have served the house of God. And I just wonder where we veered off course in this. This passion to build God's house. This pouring out and wanting to see God's church built in such a way. Because we know that God's house is the people in it, right? But pouring ourselves out in such a way that people that don't know what's going on in God's house will be drawn to God's house. 
by the lives of the people in God's house. How we veered off to, to thinking that we can just come to, serve, come to church and be served and not serve. That doesn't sound like the Jesus that I serve, who came to serve, not be served. We were never made to be spectators. We were made to be investors, contributors. Do you want to invest your life in something that matters? Do it here. Join a team. Sign up for a community group and then actually go to that community group. <laughs> Let me tell you, this place has the greatest ROI you will ever see in your life. The best return on investment you'll ever see. And you might not see it this side of eternity. But, it ha but you have eternity in mind. We're talking about forever. If this life is as short as it is, the next one with Jesus when we're praising him all day long, forever, is just as long as this one is short. The best ROI you'll ever have. Invest in the house of God. Can I just be really honest with you for a minute? The greatest moments of growth in my life have come from serving in this house. And I'm not talking about vocational ministry. So do not stop listening because this is my job, because it is also your job. Whatever your sphere of influence, whatever sphere of industry you are in, you are also a minister. And so it, it, it is that with that in mind, they were like, how can we commit to contribution? How can we commit to invest in the house of God? Don't just come a couple of times a month. How can you get in, get your hands dirty? That's what it's about, get in the muck with people. Because that's how this whole thing was built. It's about being offended with each other. That's what it's about. We're gonna, we're gonna bump into each other and crash with each other because we're imperfect people. We're humans. But it's also about giving forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, reconciling, doing something bigger than ourselves with a bunch of other imperfect people. And you can't do that by just coming a couple times a month. You can't do it. When we pour ourselves out for the kingdom, there is an eternal return on our, on our investment. A contributor, an investor, takes ownership in the house of God of which they are a part. Be all in, all the way in, whatever that looks like. Go all in. See what happens. Money back guarantee, you'll change. <laughs> the last thing we see David uh, investing in in his life is relationship. And a few years ago, I stumbled across uh, this concept called refrigerator rights from authors Will Miller and Glenn Sparks. What are refrigerator rights? Refrigerator rights uh, talk about the deep connections you have with family and friends. If someone came to your home, they could go right to the fridge without saying anything, make themselves a sandwich, grab a drink. That's refrigerator rights. That's the closeness we're talking about. But something that we need to understand is that deep and fulfilling relationship is daily. It's consistent. It's small and it builds over time. And I have to, I'm going to say this a couple of times because it's so important, but there has to be compromise between pursuing our life's ambitions and maintaining our emotional well-being. 
There has to be compromise between pursuing our life's ambitions and maintaining our emotional well-being. And what we need to understand that understand is that the deep connection, the need for deep connection we have on a daily basis is exactly the same as the need we have in trauma or crisis. The need doesn't change. It's the same. So I'd like to spend a few moments talking about another warm and fuzzy holiday feeling, stress. (laughs) Because if we let it happen, this is not the most wonderful time of year. This can be the most stressed out time of year, right? There'll be a billion parties for hosting and attending, marshmallows for roasting and eating our feelings, (laughs) and and grumbling about unshoveled snow. There'll be much missile throwing, Our hearts will not be glowing. They'll be racing when loved ones are way too near and are infringing on our personal space and boundaries. We are too stressed to be blessed. People are like, Cody, do you even like the holidays? I'm like, "I I do. I just think it's important to talk about this stuff. And so, yes, worrying is stressful. Stressed out refers to when people hear, when you say the phrase stressed out, it refers to the fact that you're worrying about consequences of something that did happen or something that is, that might happen, but has not happened yet. And yes, worrying can be stressful, but stress is more than just a psychological pressure. Any significant change in your life puts additional stress on you, right? It doesn't matter whether the change is good or bad, it still counts as stressful. Changing jobs, getting married, reconciling an important relationship, having a baby, moving, all high in stress, even though they're positive changes. And while change may be stressful, our social support system is supposed to shield us from a lot of the impact of that stress. But if we live in a constant state of change, that has the effect of diminishing our social network and strips us of valuable armor in the battle against stress. Do you see where I'm going? As long as you remain emotionally distant from others, the very insulation you need from stress, close relationships, is diminished. The core emotional problem of our day is this, a pervasive personal detachment and aloofness from other people. The core emotional problem of modern life is a pervasive personal detachment and aloofness from other people. And so we cope, right? We cope with this aloneness. We cope uh, with the belief that we can maintain personal control of our lives. I'm not going to get close, so I won't get hurt. We cope by finding gratification and even happiness in material accumulation, I am what I have. We cope and, fee- and think we can feel better by staying busy when all we are, are, we're just addicted to distraction. But we know that this belief system is a house of cards and eventually will come crashing down. What we need to do is take steps to repopulate our daily life with emotionally close relationships and that will be the single most effective force in reducing your stress levels. I literally just gave you the formula to reduce stress for free. How, but how do we do this? 
How do we repopulate our daily life with emotionally close relationships, especially in an urban context, right? How do you create closeness? It all boils down to shared experience, time together, shared hours, days, months, years of experience. And new refrigerator-right relationships are exactly like old refrigerator-right relationships. They both require shared experience. And it's a commitment to time together that matters, not feelings. Does that make sense? It's about committing to the time together, not, oh, I'm committing to this relationship so that, because it makes me feel good. So this includes our neighbors, our coworkers, our friend, friends in our lives, going to a deeper level. A, f- a few years ago, Ashley and I um, had a good friend of ours, Dr. Jim Burns, come in and do an event. And he was talking about close relationship. And he gave us a list of questions that he goes through every week with a group of guys. They've been doing it. At that point, it was like 10 years. They'd met every week and gone through this list of questions. So I'm going to give it to you today. And if you don't get them all, just email me um, or, or find me after, and we'll make sure you get these, these questions if, if you'd like them. But these are the questions that he builds his refrigerator rights relationships on. Number one, do you like the person you are becoming? Number two, is your heart for God growing or shrinking? Number three, are you giving your family only your emotional scraps? Number four, have you done anything that compromises your integrity with the opposite sex? Have you compromised your integrity with finances? Is your character submitted to Christ? Are you faithfully involved with worship and service? Is your pace of life sustainable? Have you allowed allowed a person or circumstance to rob you of joy? Are you taking care of your body through proper eating, physical exercise, and sleeping habits? New parents, you get a pass on this one. (laughs) I'm taking a pass on this one, I should say. (laughs) Have you been faithful to a regular time of Bible reading and prayer? And this is my favorite. Have you lied on any of your answers today? No wiggle room at all. Simply spending time in shared activities with family and friends develops into real closeness. You just got to put in the time. And you are responsible for the quality of your relationships. What is the common denominator of all your relationships? You. And rarely do we think about our levels of stress and our isolation from others as essentially interconnected and part of the same problem. And a word to all my introverts, you can connect and initiate too, right? It all boils down to time together. Write this down. Presence is more significant than utility. Presence is more significant than utility. The power of the presence of those you love and to whom you belong is more important than anything in particular that they do for you or with you. Just being together. A few years ago, Ashley lost her stepmother to cancer. And and we had only recently started dating, so it's been more than just a few years. Uh, 
so we were in that awkward getting to know you. I, I don't really know how to um, be there for you in this moment kind of, of place. That's how, that's how I felt in that moment when, when her stepmother passed. And so I decided just to show up. I didn't ask if I could come over. I, I literally just walked over to her apartment, grabbed one of her, her good friends, and we just walked over. And uh, we just sat with her in her room, knocked on her door, said, hey, we're here. Uh, and, and just and grieved with her, mourned with her. There were no words, just presence. No utility, just presence. We humans have a few things in common. Every one of us will flourish or perish depending on if we have two things, physical sustenance and emotional sustenance. We need both if we are to have a chance in having a fulfilled life. And I know what you're saying. He's like, but Cody, I'm just too tired, right? It's just too hard. What you're talking about takes too much effort. But I would kindly counter with this. We love and work best when we are emotionally sustained. So it's worth it. Any effort you put into it, it's worth it. Uh, an article in the American Psychologist magazine says this, virtually every study on human happiness reveals that satisfying close relationships constitute the very best thing in life. There is nothing people consider more meaningful and essential to their mental and physical well-being than their close relationships with other people. This is it. This is it. And having people around is not the same as having close relationships. Seeing someone you're close to once a month, it's not a close relationship. Close relationships require disclosure. Those questions we just talked about. Are you giving pieces of yourself to other people on a consistent basis? Close relationships require trust. Is that other person trustworthy, first of all? Because you're trusting people with your stuff that they won't betray you, that they won't embarrass you, that they won't shame you. Close relationships require care. Is that other person thinking about me? Are they being mindful of me? Do they want what's best for me? Are they knowing me and am I knowing them? If you want a friend, you gotta be a friend. If you want a friend, be a friend. I want us to spend the next couple of weeks just reevaluating and identifying who you'd like to build refrigerator rights relationships with, even if they live in Brooklyn. Right, Tanya? It's the thing. Relationship is the currency of the kingdom of God. It's the thing. And for all of our stressed out, running around, trying to figure things out on our own, the answer is a close network of social support to help us with, all, with it all, to realize that we're not alone and that we're not weird and that someone else can say, oh, you too? <laughs> Me too. 
Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.